Welcome to this E-Cystic Fibrosis Review Podcast. E-Cystic Fibrosis Review is presented by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. This program is supported by an educational grant from Genentech, Uran Pharmaceuticals, Vertex Pharmaceuticals, Axcan Pharma, and Gilead Sciences Medical Affairs. Today's program is a companion activity to the October 2010 E-Cystic Fibrosis Review newsletter topic, New Inhalation Therapies. Our guest is Dr. Scott Donaldson from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. This activity has been developed for physicians, nurses, respiratory therapists, dietitians, and physical therapists caring for patients with cystic fibrosis. There are no fees or prerequisites for this activity. The accreditation and credit designation statements can be found at the end of this podcast. For additional information about accreditation, Hopkins policies, expiration dates, and to take the post-test to receive credit online, please go to our website newsletter archive www.ecysticfibrosisreview.org and click on the November 2010 podcast link. Learning objectives for this program are that after participating in this activity, the participant will demonstrate the ability to discuss the potential benefits and risks of inhaled antibiotics at various stages of CF lung disease, describe the similarities between hydrator therapies and therapeutic expectations based upon clinical trial data, and summarize the potential use of therapies currently in development for young children with mild CF lung disease. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of E-Cystic Fibrosis Review. On the line we have with us our October Newsletter Issues author. Dr. Scott Donaldson is an Associate Professor of Medicine and Associate Director of the Adult Cystic Fibrosis Center at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Dr. Donaldson has disclosed that he receives grants and research support from Gilead Sciences, Inspire Pharmaceuticals, and Vertex Pharmaceuticals. He also works as a consultant to Perion Sciences, Inspire Pharmaceuticals, Pulmatrix, and Novartis. His presentation today will include discussion of the off-label uses of denufasol and mannitol in the treatment of CF. Dr. Donaldson, welcome to this E-Cystic Fibrosis Review Podcast. Thank you very much for having me. To help increase our understanding of the use of new inhalation therapies, we've asked Dr. Donaldson to discuss some typical case scenarios. So if you would, doctor. Okay. The first patient we're going to discuss is an 18-year-old male with cystic fibrosis who's transitioning to the adult cystic fibrosis clinic. His lung function has been stable with an FEV1 of 78% of predicted. He's had three pulmonary exacerbations that required intravenous antibiotics during the last seven years. He chronically grows Pseudomonas aeruginosa, which is pan-sensitive to all tested antibiotics in his sputum. His current maintenance regimen includes hypertonic saline and recombinant human DNAs. This patient performs airway clearance twice every day, and he exercises regularly. On physical exam, he was noted to have a normal nutritional status, and his chest and abdominal exams were normal as well. And the patient wants to get our advice on his condition and his overall treatment regimen. So let me begin by asking you to characterize his current status and regimen, and and let's start out talking about his lung function. Okay, so this young man, when looking at his lung function, he has a fairly good FEV1 at 78% of predicted and has had relatively few exacerbations requiring only three IV courses over the last seven years. Other things that I would look at or think about in this patient is just the history of rate of decline of lung function. So I'd look back at serial levels and whether this has been a recent change or been very steady. And your characterization of his antibiotic use? Again, this young man has only required a few IV courses of antibiotics over the last few years, but when looking at his chronic regimen, we see that he's not using a chronic oral macrolide. He's not using any inhaled antibiotics as a prophylactic measure either. 
So then, would this patient be a candidate for an inhaled antibiotic? What criteria would determine that? Well, I think this patient would be a candidate, and this is based largely upon his microbiologic status and his lung function. And so, when we're making individual decisions for patients, we have the best evidence and the most comfort when our individual patient matches up with similar groups of patients who have been studied in trials of antibiotics. So for this patient, he does have chronic pseudomonas infection and so is very much like the patients that have been studied in trials of either inhaled tobramycin or inhaled astrianam. And he has similar lung function to those that have been studied with an FEV1 close to that 25 to 75% range that were in clinical trials. But really getting to the issue of whether this specific person should be on a chronically inhaled antibiotic is still a point of debate. Clearly, there are short-term, meaning months to a couple of years of benefit that have been demonstrated in trials. However, there are certainly longer-term risks over the course of many years and decades that are potentially applicable to each patient that we treat. And this longer-term benefit is truly unknown. And so ultimately, we would really like to find a way to personalize this patient's regimen and every patient's regimen to maximize the benefit that they get over the long run. But how we do this really is not agreed upon. You know, in my practice, what I like to look at is the rate of lung function decline over time, looking at the last few years, and the frequency of pulmonary exacerbations that require antibiotics of any sort. And so those patients that do show evidence of declining lung function or episodic exacerbations, I think, are the best candidates for this intervention and have more to gain and less to lose. If you were to prescribe chronic cycling inhaled antibiotics for this patient, how would you choose which one? Well, the currently available therapies are either inhaled tobramycin solution or inhaled estreonam. So these two agents are approved and proven to be beneficial in patients with CF. Other therapies that are an option to us would include inhaled colistin or colimycin, which has a fairly large experience in Europe and some in the U.S., but don't have the same basis of clinical trial evidence for efficacy. And so for me, choosing something with the best evidence base would make the most sense to me. And so for this patient, I would look at their sensitivity patterns, sputum cultures, and if there was a differentiating factor of sensitivity or resistance to one of the available options, that would certainly guide me. However, in the absence of culture data that would direct me toward one therapy or another, oftentimes it boils down to preferences of the patient and preferences of the prescriber because we don't have great data of head-to-head comparisons of efficacy between two different antibiotic interventions. So here, we start to consider more the time that it takes to do a therapy, how often that therapy must be administered. We worry about long-term toxicities that might be associated with one therapy or another related to repeated exposures. And certainly, delivery device preferences come to play as well. Doctor, let me ask you to go a little bit deeper into the differences between the two major inhaled antibiotics. Okay, I'd be glad to. The antibiotic that's been approved and available to us traditionally has been inhaled tobramycin. Tobramycin solution is delivered with a conventional jet nebulizer. Typically, the time that it requires to deliver one treatment is approximately 15 minutes. And the usual dosage of this medication is twice daily. More recently, becoming available to us is inhaled astreonam. Astreonam is delivered with a different type of delivery device, the eFlow nebulizer. And this is a very different technology that is able to deliver the solution over the course of just a couple of minutes, two to three minutes on average. The downside of this is that this drug is delivered three times a day rather than twice a day. So there is some trade-off there as well. 
Some additional trade-offs is that some patients perceive that cleaning the eFlow nebulizer might be a little bit more cumbersome than taking care of a conventional jet nebulizer. So clearly, there are differences between these two therapies in terms of time that it requires to deliver them, but also some trade-offs in terms of number of times that the therapy has to be delivered, and perhaps some differences in taking care of the devices that do the delivery for the patient. Now, in your practice and from your clinical experience, have you found that patients prefer one delivery technology over the other? Well, that's a good question, too. And I think in my practice, I have patients that fall on both sides. But I think clearly more and more patients as they're introduced to the newer delivery technologies based upon the eFlow technology, they really do appreciate the shorter time of delivery. And in general, that advantage has outweighed the disadvantages that might come with more frequent delivery of a drug or the additional steps required for cleaning and maintenance of the device. So I think this has been a nice addition to our options available to patients and patients do appreciate this new technology. Thank you, doctor. Let's move on to another case, if you would. Be happy to. Okay. So the next patient I'd like to present is a 26-year-old woman with CF with moderately severe lung disease. In clinic, the measured FEV1 was about 50% of predicted. She has chronic infection with pseudomonas and has required five courses of oral antibiotics for episodes of increased chest congestion in the past year alone. She uses recombinant human DNAs, azithromycin, and she performs airway clearance regularly. On physical exam, it's apparent that she has a reduced body mass index at 18, suggesting malnutrition, and there are crackles over the upper lobes when listening to her chest. She also has digital clubbing. And in clinic, she's really seeking our input on her treatment regimen. Well, my first question would be, is there reason to change your current treatment regimen? And if there is, uh, what would you suggest? Well, I think there is. When we think about this woman's condition, I think it's fair to say that she has relatively advanced lung disease as marked by having an FEV1 that's only 50% of predicted, but also the fact that she's having very frequent flares of her pulmonary symptoms that have required antibiotic interventions. And so in thinking about what else might be done, we have to look at really all the available therapies that might be pertinent to her condition. We know that she's already using DNAs and azithromycin, and she does do airway clearance. And so when thinking about what else might be available, it would certainly include hypertonic saline, which has been shown to reduce exacerbations, as well as inhaled antibiotics. And so I think in this case, the decision is relatively straightforward to try to use more aggressive therapy to try to improve her lung function and reduce the frequency that she's having flares for lung disease. And so the options would be, in my mind, to either institute hypertonic saline or introduce cycling inhaled antibiotics. I'd like us to look at the impact her microbiology status has on treatment decisions. So let me ask you, what if her infection was not pseudomonas? Regarding her microbiologic status, that primarily relates to the use of inhaled antibiotics. As we mentioned earlier in this conversation, most of the studies that have looked at the use of inhaled antibiotics in CF have really, truly focused on only patients with pseudomonas aeruginosa. So if this patient did not have pseudomonas, we're immediately moving to less firm ground in terms of the evidence basis for using any therapy. So this being said, 
clearly there are many patients who have organisms other than pseudomonas that we as clinicians would like to treat. And usually these decisions are based upon clinical grounds that the isolated bacteria are indeed pathogenic and that there is at least a good likelihood that the organism will be sensitive to the antibiotic that's being used. And so typically we're in a situation where a patient grows another typical CF pathogen other than pseudomonas, such as stenotrophomonas, alkaligenes, or other gram-negative bacteria. Another specific infection that we deal with frequently in CF is patients who have Burkle dairy infections. And this is a another gram-negative infection that can have particularly problematic outcomes with regard to lung transplantation, but also that may be more difficult to treat because of resistance patterns. And while we don't have the evidence that we would like in terms of treating organisms other than pseudomonas, fortunately, progress is being made in the form of studies that are looking at inhaled antibiotics for these other infections. Specifically, trials are currently going on for inhaled astreonam for Burkle dairy infection. So I think we're hopeful that we'll learn more in the near future regarding the use of inhaled antibiotics for these other infections as well. What other considerations should clinicians be aware of in patients like this uh, who are truly having some difficulties? Well, you're absolutely right. In this setting where you have a patient who is struggling a little bit, I think one of the key thoughts that needs to come to our mind is how can we maximize her therapy? And so while inhaled antibiotics may be one of the options, this patient is also not in hypertonic saline. And so that is an additional therapy and one of the small handful of currently available therapies that we would want to certainly consider using in that patient. After we've worked through each of the available therapies that might be beneficial, I think we have to take the next step and really look very closely at how compliant or adherent the patient is to their therapy, their technique with therapies that require coordination or specific maneuvers such as airway clearance, and then also begin to look for other drivers of more severe disease such as cystic fibrosis-related diabetes, the poor nutritional status that this patient presented with, and other complications such as allergic bronchopulmonary aspergillosis or even a typical infection such as with non-tuberculous mycobacteria. So I think really taking a more comprehensive look at all of these these factors are important when you have a patient who's not doing as well as we would hope they would be. And perhaps the final uh, consideration in this patient is that perhaps there may be a preference for using oral or inhaled antibiotics in a patient quite frequently when perhaps switching to more aggressive use of intravenous antibiotics to combat the symptoms and decline in lung function that's occurring makes sense as well. And we'll return in a moment with Dr. Scott Donaldson from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Hello, I'm Megan Ramsey, nurse practitioner and clinical coordinator for adults at the Johns Hopkins Cystic Fibrosis Program at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. I am one of the program directors of eCystic Fibrosis Review. These podcast programs will be provided on a regular basis to enable you to receive additional current, concise, peer-reviewed information through podcasting, a medium that is gaining wide acceptance throughout the medical community. In fact, today, there are over 5,000 medical podcasts. To receive credit for this educational activity and to review Hopkins policies, please go to our website at www www.ecysticfibrosisreview.org. This podcast is part of eCystic Fibrosis Review, a bi-monthly email-delivered program available by subscribing. 
Each issue reviews a current literature on focused topics important to clinicians caring for patients with cystic fibrosis. Continuing education credit for each newsletter and each podcast is provided by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine for Physicians and by the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing for Nurses. Subscription to E-Cystic Fibrosis Review is provided without charge, and nearly a 1,000 of our colleagues have already become subscribers. The topic-focused literature reviews help them keep up-to-date on issues critical to maintaining the quality of care for their patients. For more information, to register to receive E-Cystic Fibrosis Review without charge and to access back issues, please go to www.ecysticfibrosisreview.org. Welcome back to our November 2010 E-Cystic Fibrosis Review Podcast. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of the program. Our guest is Dr. Scott Donaldson from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and our topic is new inhalation therapies. We've been looking at case scenarios to explore how the information in Dr. Donaldson's newsletter issue can be applied in the exam room. Now, so far, our focus has been on managing pseudomonas in adults. Let's shift gears now and talk about children. Doctor? I'd be happy to. So our third case is a five-year-old with cystic fibrosis. She was diagnosed by newborn screening and has never been hospitalized or treated with IV antibiotics in her life. She successfully completed her first set of pulmonary function tests, and happily, they're normal. She had a chest x-ray performed as well that reveals minimal hyperinflation, and the physical examination was normal too. Her parents administer albuterol prior to performing chest physiotherapy once a day, and she does not produce sputum on most days. In physical exam, she's a young, energetic girl with normal growth parameters. She has clear lungs on auscultation, and she has a benign abdominal exam and no clubbing. A oropharyngeal swab was obtained and cultured, and it grew only normal oropharyngeal flora and no other pathogens. I, I think I'm confused here, Dr. Donaldson. This little girl, she's got great lung function tests. She's got a great physical exam. Is it likely that she has any lung disease at all? Well, unfortunately, likely she does. One of the key considerations to think of in this very young population is that the tools that we have available to us to detect and measure lung disease are rather insensitive in the setting of mild lung disease. And so this includes spirometry, chest x-rays, and certainly our physical exam as well. What we really need to avoid is lulling ourselves into a sense of complacency when patients aren't complaining of symptoms and are doing generally well. We know from studies that are recently being done that if we use CAT scans, for example, to evaluate lung disease, we know that bronchiectasis, which is really a severe form of airway damage, is present in up to about 50% of children like this one by the age of three or four years old. And even more patients have less dramatic manifestations of disease like mucus plugging, airway thickening, and air trapping. So I think while we can be very happy that this young girl is doing well clinically, she has not required a lot of therapies, I think we have to keep in mind that almost certainly she has some lung disease that may be quite inapparent to our eyes and to our ears unless we use more advanced methods to detect the lung disease. And that's something we're learning about now and may be part of our clinical routine in the future. Uh, in a patient like this, young, mildly affected, are there any proven therapies that might improve pulmonary outcomes? Well, in fact, I think the only proven therapy for a young child like this with very mild lung disease is, in fact, oral ibuprofen. And we know that this therapy was shown quite some time ago to reduce the rate of lung function decline in similar young children. 
Unfortunately, we don't have a lot of other proven therapies. However, a lot of the new therapies that we've been talking about today and in our review certainly have potential relevance and potential benefit in patients like this. And we're just really on the cusp of being able to adequately evaluate these therapies and determine whether or not they're going to be helpful in terms of preventing lung disease in these most mildly affected young patients. One example of a study that's currently being done is looking at the role of inhaled hypertonic saline in infants and toddlers with CF. In this study, hypertonic saline is being compared to a control therapy through a year of treatment, and this is called the ISIS study or the infant study of inhaled saline. So this study and others that likely are to follow soon thereafter is really for the first time going to be giving us information about the use of these therapies directed at the underlying problem of CF and whether we can make a big difference in children in terms of preventing progression of disease. What about other therapies? I'm talking now about those that are in late stage development. Which ones, if they're approved, might be appropriate for a young child such as this with mild disease? I think the greatest promise of therapies appropriate for these young kids really are those that are directed at what we believe to be the pertinent pathogenesis of lung disease. Briefly, we think that CF lung disease evolves because airway secretions become dehydrated, secretions become essentially stuck in the chest and don't clear out of the lung well. And this sets up a nidus for infection and development of inflammatory lung disease that ultimately destroys the airways. And so what we would like to do is use therapies that prevent that first dehydration step, maintain normal hydration of secretions, normal clearance of secretions, which theoretically would prevent that whole vicious cycle of infection, inflammation, and poor clearance. And so there's a small handful of therapies that are under development currently. One of them I've already mentioned, hypertonic saline, is an approved therapy available to us today, but is currently under the trials that will hopefully determine that it is or is not effective in these young children. Another therapy that has a similar mechanism of action as hypertonic saline is dry powder mannitol. Dry powder mannitol, like hypertonic saline, is an osmotic agent that draws water out into the airway, helps hydrate secretions, and therefore accelerates mucus clearance out of the chest. So this would be another potentially appropriate therapy for young children with CF. A third agent that could be found to be useful in CF is a drug called denufasol. Denufasol has a mechanism of action that's different than either hypertonic saline or mannitol in that it binds to a specific receptor in the airway and in turn turns on ion channels that improve the secretion of chloride and water out into the airway surface liquid and therefore achieve hydration of airway secretions via a different mechanism. So denufasol, because it also hydrates the airway surface liquid and accelerates mucus clearance, is another very attractive rational therapy for treating children children with CF lung disease. And then going forward, we're fortunate that the CF pipeline is filled with other potentially beneficial agents as well. Certainly among the most exciting are those agents that are specifically directed against the CFTR molecule itself. And so in development are oral medications such as VX809, VX770, PTC124, all of which are aimed at achieving better functioning of the CFTR molecule that's mutated in CF. If that can be achieved, that too may restore the hydration of the airway surface liquid and prevent development of disease over time. So I think all of these agents have potential benefit in the youngest patients as a potential way of preventing disease down the road. From your knowledge of these agents that you talked about, those that are in development, those that are being tested, have any been shown to have a negative impact specifically on children? 
Well, I think that's a good question. And unfortunately, we're in a situation where we just don't have a lot of information on how these experimental medications affect children. And so critically important is actually conducting the clinical trials so that we can learn more about the safety of these medications and whether they indeed are beneficial as we propose that they may be. Now, that being said, we do have at least short-term trials suggesting that hypertonic saline is safe and well-tolerated in young children, but certainly more information is going to come from the longer-term ISIS study that's currently underway. Now, mannitol is a little different from the other agents that I mentioned in that it's delivered with a dry powder rather than a nebulizer. So, mannitol might be more difficult to administer with current technologies to young children who can't coordinate and activate a dry powder inhaler. So, that's one therapy that might be less applicable with current technologies to that very young population. And I would finally say that for denufasol, this is a drug that is more specifically being developed for a younger population with milder lung disease. Denufasol has really been studied only in patients with CF who have very mild disease. So it is really specifically being targeted toward this population. But again, we do need to see clinical trial data in the youngest patients to show that it's both safe and effective. Dr. Donaldson, I think we've got time for one more case. So let's focus now on a patient who's got severe lung disease. Absolutely. Our next case is a 30-year-old man with CF who does have severe lung disease and an FEV1 of 40% are predicted. Unfortunately, he's had very frequent exacerbations and is now being seen for follow-up after a hospitalization. He's back to his prior level of health at this time, and he's currently using recombinant human DNAs and azithromycin daily. Recently, he began using inhaled tobramycin and inhaled astreonam in alternate months. Now, he's read about studies of hypertonic saline, mannitol, and denufasol in CF patients, and he wonders which of these would be most appropriate for him. Well, let me echo that patient's question. Would any of those therapies be especially appropriate or especially inappropriate for this patient? Well, I think much like we just discussed in the young patient with CF, these therapies are all aimed at improving the hydration of secretions and improving mucus clearance. We think that that's important both at the beginning of life to try to prevent disease, but is also perhaps equally important in patients with severe disease to prevent the development of pulmonary exacerbations and the further decline in lung function. So in fact, I think all of these have a similar mechanism of action. That being said, we know that denufasol has really been primarily tested in patients with very mild disease. And so while it is logical that it could have a role in this patient, it would be a larger extrapolation of study results to this clinical situation than with some of the other therapies. So I think for denufasol, we're on less firm ground that it might be beneficial in somebody with severe disease. That being said, I think that's an open question for study. And so with regard to the other agents that he's inquiring about, hypertonic saline and mannitol, we know that hypertonic saline has been shown to have a substantial effect on exacerbation frequency, which is certainly a desirable outcome in this patient who is troubled with that problem. For mannitol, we're really still waiting for further data to see if it also is going to be able to have similar impact on reducing exacerbation frequency in patients with more severe disease. So we're hopeful that both hypertonic saline and mannitol would be helpful, but I think currently the best available data is for hypertonic saline, and we anxiously await the final study results of mannitol as we've covered in our review. Now, to follow up on what you just said, this patient is already on a large number of therapies. What kind of concern should there be over adding an additional therapy? And I'm going to ask you here especially to talk about potential interactions. 
Well, I think every time we're adding new therapies to a patient, especially when they're already on a number of other therapies, we have to have some concern, both from a safety standpoint and from an efficacy standpoint. While there aren't particular safety problems that we're aware of with usual CF therapies, we don't know how these therapies interact from an efficacy standpoint. And so that's probably our larger concern in the area where we don't have enough data. That being said, there is some data available from late-stage studies or phase three studies to answer some of the questions, though others certainly remain. We know from the study from Mark Elkins and colleagues in the New England Journal, where they examined the use of hypertonic saline over a year-long period, that patients taking recombinant human DNAs seem to benefit as much as those who did not take DNAs. And so that gives us some comfort that these two agents, both that are aimed at improving mucus clearance, don't cancel each other out and that there may be additional benefit from combining them together. We also know that patients in this study were using inhaled antibiotics to some degree, but really azithromycin use is rare. So we don't have any information how, for example, hypertonic saline and azithromycin might interact. With regard to the studies of mannitol, we really have some conflicting conclusions regarding combining mannitol with other drugs and specifically DNAs. In the study by Benazian et al. that we reviewed in the newsletter, in fact, a negative interaction was observed. That is, there was less improvement with the combination therapy than with either agent alone, either mannitol or DNAs. That certainly concerned and raised a lot of questions why this might be the case. However, in early presentations of phase 3 data of studies with mannitol, the same phenomenon of a negative interaction between DNAs and mannitol was not observed. And this, I think, provides significant reassurance that combination therapy with mannitol and DNAs likely is not contraindicated. The reason why I might place more emphasis on the second set of studies is that they indeed were much larger in a much more straightforward study design. And I think provides a lot of reassurance that we don't have a peculiar drug-drug interaction to worry about with mannitol and DNAs. But certainly future studies would be beneficial going forward. Now of note, hypertonic saline has been specifically excluded in studies of mannitol and denufasol in that it has a very similar mechanism of action. And so going forward, we have to really consider once we have multiple agents available that have similar mechanisms of action, are we likely to benefit by using more than one at a time? And this is something that probably does need to be studied, but for which there is no data available to date. Personally, I think that there probably won't be a role for dual therapy with, say, mannitol and hypertonic saline or denufasol and a second hydrator agent, but it's an open question that we'll have to face someday. Uh, just a note to our listeners that a link to the Elkin study in the New England Journal that Dr. Donaldson mentioned is available in the transcript of this podcast. Now, Dr. Donaldson, let's apply what's being learned from the existing clinical trials to this specific patient with severe lung disease. Well, what potential benefits might there be? Well, for this specific patient who has severe disease, we know from trials of hypertonic saline that on average, we would predict that he would have fewer pulmonary exacerbations and, again, on average, might have a small increase in lung function. If we were to choose mannitol as the additional therapy to use in him, we know from existing clinical trials that on average, he would be predicted to have an improved FEV1, but we're waiting to see if clinical trial data would predict an improvement in exacerbation frequency as well. With regard to denufasol, we really don't have any relevant clinical trials to predict whether this patient with severe disease would benefit or not. Dr. Donaldson, take the final word on new inhalation therapies, if you would, please. 
I think in general, when we think about the development of new inhaled therapies for CF, this is really an incredibly exciting time. Becoming available to us are more and more agents that target different aspects of CF lung disease, whether it be infection, defective mucus clearance, hydration of secretions, and even anti-inflammatory aspects of the disease. And so we're developing more and more tools. And not only are we getting individual therapies in each of these classes, we're developing multiple therapies using slightly different mechanisms of action to accomplish some of the same things. And so certainly as we go forward in the future, we'll have more and more tools in our toolbox to try to benefit patients. That being said, there are a lot of key questions and key areas that I think are going to be the focus of research going forward. Probably the most important, because it has the potential for the largest impact on this disease, is learning how to assess therapies very early in life. We really believe as a community that an effective therapy aimed at correcting the pathogenesis of disease applied very, very early in life has the most potential benefit. The difficulty is showing that benefit in a patient who has very little disease, no symptoms, and no abnormalities of pulmonary function. And so our community is working hard to develop better outcome measures and better trial designs to answer that question. Certainly, I think the rewards are going to be huge, however. Another really important topic that I'd like to mention is because we're developing so many different therapies that hopefully will be available to us clinically, we're going to have to learn as a community how to mix and match these therapies together to get the optimal benefit. We know that some therapies could have very long-term benefits, but others may provide more short-term and less long-term benefits. It's possible that some therapies may work synergistically or additively together, whereas others could potentially not provide any additional benefit when added to an existing therapy. And so this is an area that's difficult to address and get a handle on, but I think our community is certainly up to that challenge, and we're going to work hard to figure out just how best to optimize and personalize each of these therapies in individual patients. So it's certainly an exciting time, and it's great to have these challenges of having to learn how to use multiple different available therapies for patients with CF. Dr. Scott Donaldson from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, thank you for participating in this eCystic Fibrosis Review podcast. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's really been a pleasure to be with you. This podcast is presented in conjunction with eCystic Fibrosis Review, a peer-reviewed CE-accredited literature review emailed monthly to clinicians treating patients with cystic fibrosis. This activity has been planned and implemented in accordance with the essential areas and policies of the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education through the joint sponsorship of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education to physicians. For physicians, the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine designates this educational activity for a maximum of 0.75 AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Physicians should only claim credit commensurate with the extent of their participation in the activity. For nurses, this 0.5 contact hour educational activity is provided by the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. Each podcast carries a maximum of 0.5 contact hours. This educational resource is provided without charge, but registration is required. To register to receive eCystic Fibrosis Review via email, please go to our website, www.ecysticfibrosisreview.org. The opinions and recommendations expressed by faculty and other experts whose input is included in this program are their own. This enduring material is produced for educational purposes only. Use of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine name implies review of educational format, design, and approach.
Please review the complete prescribing information of specific drugs, combination of drugs, or use of medical equipment, including indications, contraindications, warnings, and adverse effects before administering therapy to patients. Thank you for listening. E-Cystic Fibrosis Review is supported by an educational grant from Genentech, Uran Pharmaceuticals, Vertex Pharmaceuticals, Axcan Pharma, and Gilead Sciences Medical Affairs. This program is copyrighted 2010, with all rights reserved by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing.